We've been on a little hiatus. Because you hate us? No, because my sinuses or my chest, it's a chest cold. And Were you so. appreciative that I didn't tweet out that you were sick like I did last time that we had um, this happen? I don't, I don't care either way. You can, you know, you can be a walking HIPAA violation if you want. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, that's. I don't know you any duties. Hmm? I don't know you any duty, such yeah, duties. Fair right? enough. Uh, there's, I think. I think the world owes me some some privacy duties that, that it owes to all people. But, oh, yeah, well, so that's that's why I didn't. And you just disclosed that you have been ill, and that was the reason for we had planned to take one week off because right. you were at a conference. I was, and and how was that? Uh, it was it was really great, really fun, interesting. This is up in. Can I say where it was? Uh, you can if you like. It was up in New Hampshire, University of New Hampshire. Yeah, it's a matter of public record. I think <laughs> that I was there. So, uh, an intellectual property conference. Yeah. And you had a good time. I did. And then you got back and you were very ill. Yes. Which, uh, who knows what the, what the cause was, but, uh, but I got a chest cold. I think we can say that it was a lot of people contributing. Mm. Maybe it's, maybe it's hard to disentangle. I want to hold a lot of people responsible. (laughs) That's for sure. Um, no, I, it it was, uh, it was a bad chest cold and then it got compounded by some, some, uh, sort of other health problems that I think was largely a coincidence, but should we go into further detail? With we this? should not. Um, and, <laughs> you and, did uh, text me a picture of your eye at some yeah, point. Yeah, it was, it's not pretty. And my wife, you texted her I still her have as well. the Satan eyes um, oh, uh, from burst blood vessels, but oh, uh, don't see, that's what we didn't want in here. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, I, you know, I have eye things. I, I oh, I didn't know that. I don't like eye things. Yeah. Well, better that we move along then in the conversation. I, I but I'm, I'm on the mend. I'm still not hundred percent, but I'm, I'm feeling better. As I said to someone yesterday, I'm in the angry stage of being sick, <laughs> so where I'm just like, I'm really fed up with this. Right. Being sick is not fun. It slows you down. That's I've not how that works. Isn't acceptance the last stage of this? Is this... No, I don't know what the last stage is. I just know I'm in the anger stage. <laughs> but who can be angry with our great guest today? Absolutely. This is an amazing conversation. Yep. Say more. <laughs> I, 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 we're about to say a lot, so you yeah, know, as soon as I point. hit stop here and I kind of put right. them so together. This is uh, Professor Shahar Dilbari uh, at Alabama, and it's a it's a great tort paper, and uh, it it's it's something you and I've been sort of moving slowly toward this Tech Law Institute discussion we're going to have about uh, automated vehicles, which is it, on Friday. Maybe so, the day this drops. Maybe this right. episode will drop the day before. I haven't. Depends but, on what but it's I get got to. us thinking about. It's got me thinking about you know complicated questions of of causation and tort law and responsibility and and how multiple actors who come together and all of whom are a piece of the puzzle are held responsible or not right for things that may go wrong and and just getting better getting better tools fresh in my mind for thinking about that and i think this conversation is super helpful yeah and it takes a more it takes like i said i think at the beginning a more hard-edged law and econ approach to that like okay i don't know i'm not exactly sure what but for causation is i know that people do things and and after doing things we get new worlds yeah. that have that are either preferable or not to other possible worlds. Right. And so let's just figure out how we can intervene in the system and poke people around and make them lead to better worlds rather than worse worlds. Yeah. So it's a really in a interesting nutshell. paper in its own right and just comes at a good time. For yeah, us. that's true. That's true. What well, else is going on? Speaking of good times. Boy, this is October 2016. Yeah. Got an election coming up. These are good times, aren't they, Joe? Yeah. Oh, so good. Do we want I think now we, as everyone else knows, we, we are also a political pundit podcast, right? Oh my God. No, <laughs> no, no, no. We're not talk about it. But do you know, I, I do have a podcast recommendation. I don't think I said this last time. <coughs> oh my God. Oh my God. All what? right. You didn't say it last time. I need time? a cough button is what I need. So you can like hit something. I coughed. I moved away, dude. You, you were really good. Stop I mean, complaining. I, I, I am very appreciative. So of your, what's your of podcast your recommendation? Um, this is, um, 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 uh, it's called the um show, uh, election profit makers with David Reese and John Hodgman. No, no, it's, it's David Reese's childhood friend in North Carolina. Who's amazing. So this, they, the, you know, David Reese, I do amazing. Right. And his friend, John is hilarious. It's a great podcast. They are getting on predicted.org to place various kinds of bets on election related things and oh. are talking. You know, so they're talking about the election and, and taking bets on America for fun and profit. Nice. And it's hilarious. Really good podcast, but it will end. So you, what all listeners should do is go back and listen to the first one and just listen to them all in order. Because and what is it called again? Election Profit Makers. Okay. 
with uh, yeah. David Reese is very funny. Very, very funny. Yeah. So I have to recommend that one. That's that's a soothing balm against the white hot scars and pains that this <laughs> election has inflicted on all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think I'll say any more, but uh, what what else do we have? I know we've had a little bit of feedback, but we're going to, are we still saving that up? Yeah. We've got some stuff uh, building up in the mailbag. Okay. So that's good. Is it bursting at the seams? Yeah, Not yet. So people need to write in because uh, there's some space in there. Okay. Now, now how do they, how do they do that? It's uh, at uh, Hillary Clinton email.com. Boy. Is that our address? <laughs> Uh, clintonemail.com oral argument podcast at gmail.com gwb43.com is that where it is unbelievable <laughs> oral argument podcast at gmail.com now is this a private email account that we've set up what do you mean private it's ours we it's you know hmm. Hmm. uh hopefully it will not be wiki leaked hmm. but you never know <laughs> oh it would be the end of us wouldn't it yeah the shenanigans that go on all with that strategic- oral argument all the strategic content in there podcast at gmail.com oh my account. gosh oh my gosh <laughs> anyway, send us your <laughs> or comment on Facebook or write us on Twitter or what's the Twitter handle? Oral really? argument. Oh, okay, cool. At oral argument. Yeah, I, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> I can't even remember. Hilarious. <laughs> I think so. I think yeah. it's oral argument. I think I got that one. All right, on with the show, dude. And, no, well, and, and then we also have a Facebook. You can get on there. You can I just comment said on that. that. Oh, did you? Yeah. I, I don't listen to half the things you uh, said. So I, I heard the Twitter part. I didn't hear the Facebook part. Fair enough. Hey. Is this Shahar? How are you guys? Doing great. Good morning, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited about it. It's my first podcast, so this is sounds like a lot of fun. Oh, the, fir- the first of many, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we see how this one goes, right? <laughs> right. That's, hey, well, Shahar, if how we, do you... If we had said that, if we had said this, we'll see how this goes, we never would have made more than one or two of these. So <laughs> the, the key is not seeing how it goes and just doing them anyway. Yeah, the rearview mirror is an overrated object. You sort of don't look in there. Just, you know, go forward. Um, Shahar, how do you pronounce your family name? Is it Dilbari? That's correct. That's right. And it's, it's a funny family name. It's, uh, it means a uh, loving heart or something like that. And my first name, Shahar, in Hebrew is Don. So it's like I have the cheesiest name, like Don Loving Heart, Sunrise Loving Heart or something like that. Wow. Very, uh, that's emotionally very intriguing. Yeah, I blame my parents on this one. <laughs> it's a little hippie for a guy who's writing such a hard-nosed law and econ piece. <laughs> Truly. Maybe something in psychology of it. Dawn Loving Heart does not scream cost-benefit analysis. I agree. <laughs> That's... It's weird because I've been, I've been teaching uh, adverse possession and property law. Hmm. And, it's a fun and, area. Yeah. And one, one, of the, one of the phrases that you see there when courts are trying to figure out whether a an adverse possessor has to have good faith or not. Or some of these early cases where actually you could only win if you had bad faith, right? And uh, and, and so courts will use this phrase black-hearted trespasser. Really? Which I really like. Yeah, it's, 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 oh, it, seems, wow. it seems really like daggerish, doesn't it? Right. The black-hearted trespassers, the, the pirate who comes Very over. English. Yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> Are these old English cases? Uh, I, I'm not sure if that phrase, I'd have to go back and look because I took out probably some of the quotes when I put it It just in has book. a real Blackstone feel to it. It does. The history angle is as interesting as the law and equal angle, I think, over here. Ah, uh, yeah, true, true. History is the, I, the, the particular method by which the edges got rounded off as, as society evolves and land becomes a different thing. I mean, there, there's a particular way that you're going to get to something which people can accept. Ultimately, you're going to get somewhere that people can accept, right? Which is, yeah. which is maybe, you know, part of what's going on in this, in, this, in this piece that you wrote, Shahar, which is super interesting. and, and we have to figure out how to get into the law and econ with it, uh, of it without kind of overwhelming our, our listeners with, with facts and figures. But I think there's an easy way to, to do it. And I know you and Joe have talked a little bit about it in advance. But would it help if we kind of set up – like let's assume our listeners don't know anything about the learned hand formula. They don't know okay. anything about tort liability. And I promise not to mention any formulas. <laughs> <laughs> this will not happen on this podcast. Okay, excellent, excellent. But um, – you know, we're a weird podcast. We mention all kinds of things. We've done formulas before, haven't we? Sure. I think we even put up that 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 um, calculation sheet that I made about wrongful convictions that time. You remember that? Yeah, and we did a we did an interesting data visualization uh, paper that we talked about once. Mm-hmm. So sure, you with know, a connection to this one. Actually, our listeners are are up for all kinds of complicated things. So so what? So for so let's just assume let's just assume that what we care about in society is moving to is is among the possible worlds that we could choose for the next instant to move to the one with the kind of the greatest difference between benefits and costs right you know where where benefits minus costs is maximized and that's okay. what we're interested in doing 
I think that's your perspective, right? And we're trying and, and we have we can kind of change the liability regime so that we can punish actors or allow actors to punish one another through the legal system for wrong choices they made about possible worlds. So I think the law, we, the, the world we're living in, if you want, is actually provides a, a grim picture in the sense that we are already over there. The paper basically shows that right now our laws are already incentivizing people to behave in a certain way. Now we can get into it in a second. Yeah. I'm not trying to change the law. I'm just trying to say, you know, the king is naked. This is a phenomenon that is happening. Uh, people are saying it's not, but if you look at it, it's happening. And if you don't like it, here are actually tools to do something about it. I happen to like it. So I'm not against of keeping what we have. But I like what we have already. And should I jump in and try to, to give the gist of, of the idea? Well, I, I was just going to maybe, – maybe an example. Maybe like the – you know, yeah. uh, because it's the it's the person who's contemplating whether to participate in a drag race who has some <laughs> who has some choice about which possible world to create. Before we do that, okay. all right, because you you just said drag race, and we've got some other the the fact scenarios here are actually very easy to grasp, right? Yeah, drag racing, uh, campfires, uh, folks out hunting together. Uh, even if you haven't done these things, and I haven't done it, well, I've been camping. But uh, I, I haven't been drag racing. I haven't been out hunting. But it's very easy to understand the, the, the sort of basic scenarios. But before we do that, I just want people to be thinking about the much simpler case as a baseline where you've got, you know, someone's driving down the road in a car. They have an accident. They hurt someone or something. Maybe they knock over someone's mailbox. Maybe they actually hit a person. Right. Um the way we think about responsibility and liability in that dyad situation, there's there's a hurt person and the hurting person, and just the basic idea there. Should the hurt person have to pay the person they hurt? That's the basic social question, right? Should should they be responsible in some way? Right. And we're going to focus just on torts. So we're not going to ask whether we should put them in jail or, right. or make them pay a fine to the to the public. It's should they have to compensate? And I think the way we think about that, although I'm not a tort scholar and not a tort teacher, but I think the way we think about that, there's sort of two ideas that together sort of tell a story. One is we think about the driver of the car as being the, the cause of the accident. Now, there's a sense in which the other thing is also a cause. If it hadn't been there, it couldn't have been hit. Uh, fair enough. Um, but and, the driver and, and, and of the, the car, parents, the parents of the driver of the car, are also a cause. Of indeed, the accident, right? right. But we think of it sort of cause and agency at who's acting, who's making choices. There's sort of an active, the active mover in a picture occupies our mental field, and so we might think of the driver as a really important cause of what happened. And so that's a person you'd hold responsible, right? The other idea that's in there is, you know, well, you know, accidents happen, but. It matters if people took the steps they could to avoid avoidable accidents. We want to encourage people to do that, right? Right. So you put those two ideas together and you've got a liability story. How am I doing, Shahar? Uh, doing great. Um, and, and let me build on that setup. So l- let's complicate that not too much. Let's assume we have a drug race. And again, as you mentioned, it applies in many cases, but the drug race is a good example to start with. We have two drivers, right? And let's assume... and, and the, the and, we have two drivers and that's even one spectator. The rule is that if one of the drivers hits a pedestrian or, or a car that is on the side, not only the injuring driver is going to be held liable, but the law is such that even the non-injuring parties, the non-injuring driver and even the spectator, the law would hold everyone liable, the three. And the question is, why do we do that? In terms of causation, the story is that someone hit the guy, that person caused the damage. And courts say, well, the non-injuring driver and the bystander, they didn't cause the damage. So why are we holding them liable? And the court is saying, well, there is no causation over here. They didn't cause any harm. But yet we are going to hold them liable because we want to achieve two things. And these are deterrence. We want to deter the other drivers and the bystander from engaging in what the court is viewing as an antisocial activity. And we want to be fair to the victim so the victim can try to get compensation, not just from the injuring driver, but also from the other parties. Here's the, here's the twist. The story is that this description is absolutely wrong. Actually, what the law is doing, the law right now is encouraging actors to engage in antisocial behaviors that the court is condemning. So we have this irony. And 
Can I give you a simple example of how it's happening? So to make it just, it's hard to believe, I guess, right? Well, it is. I mean, it's hard to believe in the sense that you've got all these courts talking about, I mean, fairness sounds good. Um, deterrence sounds good. And those sound like very traditional tort law concepts that, that we should be using. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's kind of, it sounds pretty counterintuitive. Could everybody be wrong about this really important set of ideas? So Yeah, so actually I'm arguing that the law is killing people. The law is actually is the very reason the victim is injured. So that hardly can be fair. And the law is encouraging, not uh, um, deterring. So here's the story. Let's assume that we have a drug race with two drivers. Let's start with that. And suppose just very simply that each one values the activity at $40. That could be the fun from driving. It can be the possible rewards. And because it's a dangerous activity, let's assume that the expected harm to a victim is $90. That's it. So each one benefits $40, and the possible harm is $90. With two drivers, neither of them is going to race. And the reason is simple. Driving or racing here promises a loss with a benefit of $40. Each one, in case of an injury, is going to expect to pay half of the $90 damage, so $45. And if you make $40 and you're going to lose $45, that's a losing proposition. No one is going to race. And here's the twist. The law incentivizes the same two careful drivers to race carelessly if there is a spectator that encourages them. And here's why. The reason is that the law will hold, as we mentioned, everyone liable, not just the two drivers, but also the bystander. Now, this means that the $90 harm is going to be split not two ways, but three ways. So now each driver, in case of an injury, can expect to pay one-third of the $90, which is $30. Well, now if you make $40 and you're going to pay only a fraction of $30, well, now racing carelessly promises you again of $10. The point here is that when you hold more parties liable, you can dilute the liability of each driver to the point that no one is going to behave carelessly. More people liable doesn't mean more deterrence. It's actually the opposite. You encourage them to behave carelessly. Now, it's important to know that it's not the spectator's encouragement that entices the drivers to race here. It's the law. The law ensures each driver that they will pay less, not 45, not half of 90, but one third of 90, $30. Now, I'm not saying that we should not hold the spectator liable. I think the spectators, the all drivers should be liable. But for another reason, and I can discuss with you in a second why. But the reason is not that because the law is enhances fairness, is the law is not enhancing fairness or, or deterrence. The law is the very reason we see these cases in many cases, not always, but many cases. And the law is the very reason the victim is actually being harmed. So quite quite apart from being fair, it's sort of in it turns fairness on its head. It says the legal rule is a legal rule that makes it that makes the world where the person gets injured more likely to occur. Yes, absolutely. The more, li- the more liability you impose on parties for the same harm, especially when the harm is capped, the less each one is going to pay. So if their personal benefit is the same and the amount of money they're going to pay is decreasing as the number of tort fees increases, well, you just made it a great bargain. It's, it's actually worse than that. Think about <laughs> the, three the three of us are engaging in drug race in, in this story. Each one can expect to pay one third of the harm. That's $30. We're going to benefit 40, so each one is making $10. But you know what makes it better? If instead of a drug race with the three of us, we're going to call another six people to join us. Now, if we are nine people, the $90 is going to be split nine ways, so each one is going to be liable only for $10. Well, if before my, da- my profit was $10, 40 minus 30, now my profit is 40 minus 10. I just increased, we increased our profits three times by adding more people to this tort festivity, if you want. So the, the, if you want, the perverse result is that the more people join the activity, the more beneficial, the more enticing it becomes. So not only the law is encouraging us to, to engage in such activities, the law is, is, is incentivizing us to join with many people as possible to engage in such activities. And you do indeed see cases where the drug races, they have a lot of participants, all of whom are going to be liable. And what's the best thing if you take it to pollution and factories? The same story applies. Before we talk about pollution, I just want to, another thing about your hypo, right, where you've got, you, you've got more drivers participating in the drag race, you've got more people ar- across whom the $90 
expense of the accident is being spread. Another thing that seems to be happening is the the benefit side of the equation keeps growing because each participant is realizing a benefit. Absolutely. So he, here's here's another way to think about it, right? So with two drivers, we saw that none of them is going to to engage in the race because it's it's a losing proposition. And that's good. That would be a bad accident because if we have two parties, total benefits are 40 times two, it's 80. The damage to the victim is 90. More, ben- more damages than, than benefits. We don't like this drug race. If you have three or four or five people in the race, let's take three. With three people, total benefits, as you mentioned, they increase to 40 times three. It's 120. The damage is 90. Now there are more aggregate benefits than cost. If you're willing to respect the subjective benefit of the injurers, if you're willing to take that under consideration, this is a good accident, so to speak, right? Now, when we speak about drug races, that may be sound horrifying. Think about three, two factories. Two factories, each one making $40 from the activity, and they're going to destroy a $90 lake. We don't like that. More cost and benefit. Three factories polluting, that's wonderful. We have $120 in benefits versus a $90 harm to the lake. And actually, the fact that it's enticing more factories to join the situation, it's great because we don't want to destroy many lakes. We want to destroy as little lakes as possible, but we understand that there are benefits from the activity. We need cars. We need computers. We need Skype. All of those activities create pollution. So unless you want to live in a pristine, pollution-free world, but we live in a cave, that's one option. If we understand that we want certain things in our life and that they come at a cost, we just have to make sure that the benefits outweigh the cost or benefit outweigh the cost enough to justify that. And, and that's where we started, right? That the, you know, that what we're trying to do under this view of society and morality is to choose future worlds where the benefits exceed the costs. And I, I kind of want to back up to go forward. Let's just take, again, the individual person deciding what to do, right? Uh, I can either, you know, drive my car at 80 miles an hour or drive it at 50 miles an hour on a certain uh, stretch of road or maybe not drive it at all. And I'm trying to figure out which of those to do. And each presents a, a risk of injury. And we're kind of assuming that I have information about, you know, ex ante before I make that decision about the, about the risks of those activities. And the great insight of uh, Learn in Hand and associated with the Hand Formula, although I think it was around before this and tort scholars will, will know this. You're right. Yeah. Is that um, ex ante evaluating the benefits and costs of these options involves multiplying probabilities times the losses that will occur under the eventuation of those uh, of those options. So if I have a 50% chance of, of, of receiving $100, you know, how much would someone buy that chance from me? They'd pay $50. Again, assuming they're yeah. indifferent about these things, there aren't threshold effects, there are all kinds of complications. But yeah. you know, how and much another you, phrase you'd hear is expected value. Expected value. I'm just trying to do it without that. But yeah, so so if there's a 1% chance of incurring a $100 loss, I should be willing to pay up to a dollar to to avoid that. And so so one way of looking at this is that if I am thinking about trying to get some benefit, uh, and, and I'm going to have to undertake some activity to get that benefit, that the the um, I can and, and there there are risks with this, or there are risks of, of certain harms happening. Um, one thing I can do is pay to prevent that risk from occurring, right? By paying for some precaution. In which case, that precaution would be a factor of production of my benefit, right? I mean, just like I'm a factory, and in order to stop some pollution, I install a scrubber, or I install something else, and and I do that in anticipation that if I didn't do that, then I would have this risk of harming others, which may come back to me. If I don't undertake that precaution, uh, then there's a risk that I could cause harm to others. And in a legal system which shifts that risk back to me, uh, that cost, that expected cost, is now also a factor of my production. And so kind of what the legal system does is to determine whether I have made the right decision about which factor to use, right? The factor of expected risk to others or the factor of taking precautions. And, and that's kind of the inside of the learned hand formula in a way. Is it, so it's encouraging, you to make, it's encouraging you to make informed decisions about which factor to use by learning more, by right. investigating more, right. by understanding how things operate. And, and normally when we talk about the learned hand formula in, 
in, in torts, we don't use this kind of fact because it's a, it's kind of heavy and, and useless because normally we just say, you know, you, sh- you should make a rational decision. The rational decision, if you were to incur all of the costs of your conduct and setting aside all the complications with right. that. Or the phrase Shahar's already used, cost justified. Cost like, justified, you know, right. Think of it as a balance sheet. Think of right. it as, you know, there are some benefits, there are some costs. How does it all work out? Right. It, so, so if you would, if it costs you $50 to pay for a scrubber to eliminate the pollution from your factory, but there's a 30% chance of a million dollar injury occurring. If you don't install that scrubber, you should pay the $50, right? It sounds like a good deal. It sounds like a really good deal, right? And if you had to pay all these things, if you had to choose which of these items to buy, right, the risk-adjusted harm or the scrubber, a rational person would choose the scrubber, right? And and both of them produce the benefit in the end, right? Both options in that sense, they're both factors. Now, I use this factor idea because I think what's going on in these, in, in a lot of the examples that you give, Shahar, is that we are looking at scenarios which have different scale economies on the benefit side or on the cost side, mm. right? And, and Joe, you alluded to this in the, in the drag racing example, right? The, the benefits are increasing as you add new participants, right? right? For every new participant, you get a new lop of benefit because that, the benefits of a drag race are experienced personally, right? It's not like they're right. cooperating to produce some, right. some one, one beneficial thing. But the risks... As you've posited it, right? Now, we could easily posit a drag race where the more participants, the more possible people who could be injured, and therefore the the expected injuries are increasing with the number of participants in the drag race. Mm. But the way that the examples have been given, you know, there's there's one potential victim out there or at least a fixed number. And so as you increase the number of participants, you're getting scale economies with that factor of production because it's a fixed cost, right? So the drag race, either we all drive more carefully and in that case, we're all suffering, right? In other words, that, that, that factor is increasing with the number of participants because they're right. all paying for that, right? Right. But if, if, what we're, if instead what we do, um, if instead what we do is, is not to take any precautions and we just accept the risk to that one person who might be injured, well, that fixed cost is now going decre- to be increasingly, um, um, it's going to be increasingly profitable for us to, you know, basically pay that cost and use that factor, in, our, in the production of our drag racing fund than something else. Right. Does that make sense? I mean, it seems like like what's really going on here, Shahar, is you're trying to, is that the law through um, joint causation is, is, is actually occurring private entities to kind of make that trade-off. Good, good, good. So that's correct. And let me say a couple of words. You mentioned you hit on a couple of very important issues. So first of all, there are a number of assumptions in the paper. Uh, actually, they are not very strong about information, for example. We'll discuss that if you want later on. I assume that courts are oblivious. For example, courts do not know how much I personally benefit from the drug waste. That's impossible for them to know. And, and what the courts are actually doing, they are deferring the question, the decision whether to participate in the race to the actor. The actor decides whether it's worth for him or not. And if so, he makes a decision knowing that he or she may be liable. So there is actually very little the paper is assuming, but there is a very strong assumption and you're right that as the number of actors increases, benefits increase. That was George's point. And your point is also true that both the risk and the damage may increase. So, right, if we have two drug racers, uh, the damage may be you know, a certain amount and a certain, there will be a certain risk, maybe 5% chance of causing a $100 harm. But if we have 10, uh, 10, 10 drivers right now, well, there is actually could be a higher probability of getting engaged into a car accident. So instead of 5% or 10%, it might be now 20%. And the damage may be harmed. There is more at stake, more drivers on the road driving like crazy. So instead of 100, it could be 1,000. This is all true. Now, the, the assumptions on the paper actually requires that even if the expected value, the combination of the risk and the increase in damages, even if that factor increases, so long as the benefits increase in a higher pace, everything still works. It just right. for the ease of presentation, I capped the, da- the expected damage just to make the point to see what happens. But you're right, both the probability and the damage may increase. And even in that case, under some situations, uh, this story that we see here is actually still going to work. Um, one thing that is interesting is that what's true in the one-on-one, the one injury, one victim uh, regular scenario doesn't hold in multiple uh, injury scenario. In the sense that when, I, when there is a cost of precaution, and the cost of precaution, let's say, $35, and the benefit for the activity is $40, and if I'm going to drive carelessly, I'm going to cause $90 harm, 
I'm not going to drive carelessly because I'm going to enjoy 40, but I'm going to pay 90. If I take care, I'm going to enjoy 40. I'm going to pay $35 on care. So I'm benefiting from care. So I will take care. But what if we have three drivers? Well, now they're going to say something like that to themselves. Well, if we take care, each one of us is going to make five bucks, $40 minus 35. What happens if we don't take any care? Well, we're going to be liable together for $90. It's three of us, so each one is going to pay $30. So what's better? Uh, take upfront care for, for $35 or just hit the guy and pay $30 afterwards? And of course, the result is that this law that we have right now not only encourages you to engage in more dangerous activities, at a certain point, it will also encourage you to stop behaving carefully even if before you would. Mm -hmm. So that's a result that we don't see that often in the one-on-one -on -one story in torts. But, but if, so if what we're trying to do is to um, encourage efficient risk-taking and discourage inefficient risk-taking in the end, could we restate like your nor the normative point, well, really the normative and descriptive mixed together here because part of what you're doing is showing kind of the hidden the hidden side of tort law as actually doing the right thing through these um, uh, joint liability. Um, I don't want to say joint liability. That's a term of art, but kind of collective liability uh, mechanisms. Um, could we just state it like this, though, that that the, there should be collective liability among um, different actors if, if, but for transaction costs, they would form a firm to take advantage of scale economies Ooh, in I the like situation. That. Right. So so the drag racers like you know, part of the example here is that, you know, individually they wouldn't they well, I, it depends on how you do the numbers. Right. But but uh, in a situation where they would not personally alone engage in, say, risky driving or something like that, the, the only reason that they get together to do this is because at a certain point it make that collective action makes sense. And it makes sense because the, the, the benefits are growing faster than the. Uh, than, than the expected costs, right? As you add, you know, marginal participants. And so the, the whole point is that you, you have scale economies and benefit relative to, uh, relative to marginal risks. And as you point out, it's not that the, it's not that the risk adjusted damage has to be capped. It's just that it has to grow more slowly than the benefits with marginal participants. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And the question is, do we like it? Well, right now, Tort law is designed in a certain way, right? If, uh, if, if, let's say I want to buy your $90 car, that's the market value of your car, and I just want to take it and use it in my yard, you know, for display or just for a bonfire. I want just to destroy your car. You know, you bought a <laughs> car and I don't like it. Right. So I just want to come, buy it, and, and destroy it. Now, if I come to you and, and I say to you right now, in, in, under a contract story, hey, can I buy your car? And you tell me, you know, I have a certain emotional attachment to that car. It was handed to me for my father. I say to you, not for the market price, but for four times the market price. Um, I will most probably decline, decline to buy it, but this is what I can do. I can basically, putting criminal law aside, I can take your car and burn it down nevertheless. That's tort. In that case, you basically sue me for the market value of the car. So if you want a tort, it's an involuntary transaction. What mm -hmm. I can do in contract, I can do in torts, and I will pay only the market price value and not this emotional attachment premium you wanted to ask for. Now, wait, now this is interesting. This gets to a question that, that kept coming up in my mind as I read your paper. You, the hypo you just uh, gave with uh, burning Christian's car, and by the way, I would like to come and watch it because uh, I just think it would be fun. <laughs> oh, that's great because then we'll share liability. It will make it much more better for me. I'm, I'm <laughs> exactly. <wait> right now. <laughs> this, so, is, this is a deep cut because Joe's proclivity towards – um, As listeners will know, if anyone has a car here that's going to get burned, it's me. Anything, uh, anything. right? Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, but but what's interesting to me, Shahar, about about this this new fact pattern is um, is the intent story is very different, right? So the yes. the e even in the campfire example, the hunting example, uh, even the drag race example, uh, these are all accidents. That's and correct. so I kept wondering in my mind as I read your paper, what would we think, and and what would the law do in terms of a of a liability rule or a causation rule for all these people who are participating um would we would we act differently if it were an intentional tort rather than an accident and you know you can 
I don't know if you know this this cult classic movie from the 1970s called Death Race 2000, where you've got a bunch of people who are who are doing this cross country race, and the point is to hit people. I think I actually saw that movie when I was a kid. Um, yeah, and the, oh, and the, the movie. Yeah. yeah, so it, it's like the 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 role of intent here. It seems to be when you flip that switch, and you're no yes. longer talking about accidents. You're talking about a group plan or a single person's plan to inflict knowingly a, a visit a harm knowingly on a particular person seems to me the discussion is should be very different and it is different you're making a very good point so Toto is actually very smart so how do we force someone to buy christian car rather than burn his car and take it and just pay the market the, the undervalued market value uh, for christian well, in the case of the story that I gave about burning Christian car, and again, story about that Christian, uh, Toto deal with the problem by imposing punitive damages. And if I value burning Christian car, you know, even 1000 but I'm going to pay, you know, nine times the value of the car um, because it's, it's basically disgorging any possible benefits, so I will not do it. So punitive damages in torts, the threat of punitive damages for intentional torts forces people, they channel them back to the market. So I will be knocking again on Christian door and say, you know, I would have burned your car, but this is going to be an intentional tort, and I would be paying punitive damages. That doesn't make any sense. So I'll pay you the 300 premium that you want. That's how we deal with intentional tort, but there is something in between, which is very important. So between the intentional tort, going to Christian for the purpose of simply burning his car, how about the, the drivers who intentionally or just knowingly engage in a drug race, even if it's for the purpose of having fun or getting the award and not hurting people, they still know that someone may be getting hurt. Actually, they engage in this ex-ante cost-benefit analysis should be doing it knowing I may be hitting someone. Think about factories, big organizations. Should we produce and work and pollute this lake Knowing that, and I will do it if my benefit is 40 and two other factories are going to destroy the $90 lake, knowing that I will be paying only $30, should I do that? Now, the law is treating, though, the drug racing and the pollution differently than the intentional tort. And here is the reason why. Tort law understands that, at least for factories, we need them to produce. Actually, some courts say that explicitly. And because of that, we're going to hold them liable holding them liable and sure that they will engage in the activity only if it's cost justified, only if there are more benefits than cost. If it's burning someone's car because I just didn't want to pay his price, courts say, no, that's intentional, you'll pay punitive damages. In between, you have the drug races. So the fact is definitely we need cars, so we don't care so much about the pollution, apparently. With the burning the car, we don't like that for sure. There is nothing that we appreciate about it, so we channel you to the market. What about the drug racing? And, in, and I've been reviewing, you know, thousands of cases. Actually, I'm also engaged right now both in an empirical project and an experimental project. See how people would react to this type of theory. Uh, do they really behave that, like that? And we can discuss what's going on. But drug races usually do not bring any punitive damages. More than that, something even more interesting. When you drug race, in almost all states, it's, uh, it will give rise to tort liability. And it's actually a criminal offense. But in many jurisdictions, unless someone is being physically injured, if there are only property damages, if you just bang a couple of Mercedes and Subarus when you were driving, they will not bring any criminal offenses in many of the states. And why is that? Well, if you would use the criminal system together with the tort system, the criminal system would serve as uh, the same function that punitive damages would to deter people from the activity. And what we see in some states, they have a, how would I say it, maybe a preference or a certain flavor for drug races. They don't see that as a priority. They are fine with that. And we see states that criminalize that suddenly not prosecuting. And vice versa, states or jurisdictions that see drug races as a rising problem, suddenly they start prosecuting and using those criminal laws to supplement the tort system, and then it's really deterring. So to use a more... Um, a, term of art, a better term of art, punitive damages in torts and the criminal system, if you want the anti-dilution mechanism, as mm. opposed to the, just the tort system, it dilutes the ability of each person as the number of tort cases increases. So the tort, the, the tort system 
the way I view it, is trying to achieve efficiency. That's it. That's the only thing it cares about. We can supplement it with punitive damages and criminal law if we think that, you know, as much as we care about efficiency, when I live in my neighborhood, I don't want people driving like crazy at night. That's okay. We use punitive damages. We use the criminal system to serve as moral deterrent. They reflect societies, if you want, uh, morals. Uh, they reflect a sense of fairness as opposed to tort, which is usually trying to achieve fairness, at least from the law and economic perspective. Well, well you can, I mean, so, so this goes back at least to Calabresi and Melamed, right? That, that um, the, one of the functions of the criminal law and of punitives, and this is what exactly what you're saying, is to prevent people from, the, like the car situation, from turning a property rule into a liability rule, right? So, so if we think for whatever reason that in order to use a resource, I should have to get the permission of the owner of that resource, whether it is a body or it's a car or something else, uh, then, then to kind of give just um, 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 kind of reliance tort damages after the fact is to approve of their taking of the thing at the kind of public set value of that entitlement right? Rather than having to deal with the person because they'll ex ante, they'll say, well, you know, this person is being unreasonable. I'll just take it and I'll pay damages after the fact. And so you, in order to stop that, you, you, you kind of ratchet up the punishments and you can either use uh, tort law or, or criminal law there. Uh, you use tort law, punitive, punitive damages or, or criminal liability. So in that sense, they're substitutes for one another and maybe they may be qualitatively different kinds of, of injuries. And you refer to in, in the collective liability context, um, punitive damages as anti-dilution and, and kind of the way I described it earlier, they would, what they would be kind of erasing scale economies that you would, that you would otherwise, that you would otherwise get. But, I, but I do wonder if they really, um, there, there are other uses of punitive damages that, um, that don't just sound in morality. For example, one reason we might apply punitives is that, well, kind of what I just said, it kind of forces the prospective tortfeasor to deal with the person who they will be trying to take from. And the reason we might do that is because we think it is more efficient to do that because the person who owns the car is a better valuer of that car than would be a court ex post, right? So th- there can be some efficiency reasons to... to I think it, another reason would yeah. be, in addition to that one, that you might say, uh, and I don't think they're the same, um, is ease of detection. So, uh, for example, in the IP realm, uh, willful infringement is a phrase you use to talk about uh, enhancing damages and the and and I think the principal theory for doing that is that uh, it is difficult to detect infringement often mm-hmm. and so knowing that people won't be caught with certainty and this I think is different from some of the intentional tort scenarios we were just just cooking up where people are going to know exactly who's responsible and because of the scenario but but in IP infringement. Um, you, you, this given is a, this is a general, this is, is a general principle too. This detection avoidance problem. I mean, and, sure. and, and you, there are second orders of this that right. other people have written about, right? That you know, you're basically trying to capture all the instances that are under under undeterred, right? right? And, and so you put those two things together, both um, encouraging someone to bargain with the person who holds the interest, and um, in a context where detection is not certain, um, enhanced damages make sense. So this is, a, this is a good option, but I wonder if punitive damages can definitely do what you mentioned it may do, but I wonder if there isn't a better way. So let's start with Christian points. So, you know, when I have the car parking on the side, um, I would be getting, if it's stores, I would be getting the market value, 90000 my story, for example, as opposed to I should be getting maybe $150 because I valued the car that much. That is true, but before using an anti-dilution mechanism like punitive damage, it would be easier if we would just be able to accurately assess the damages, that would solve the problem. So we don't have to stop the activity. We just have to have a better way to figure out what the damages. So when in the evidence stage, when we're trying to prove damages, I can prove, for example, this is a car that my father had for 30 years. He handed that to me. Therefore, there's definitely some emotional value about it. Uh, so in addition to the market uh, value, I should get another premium. And the jury, of course, when they deliberate based on the evidence they've seen, they can decide, well, you should get not $90, the market value, but maybe $300 problem solved. Um, with regard to the ease of detection, um, here it's actually, let me give you a, an interesting scenario where the, we don't know who did it, but it doesn't really matter. 
So think about, you know, for the uh, legal listeners, the Summers versus Ties case, we have two hunters, both of them shooting carelessly, one of them hitting the victim. We don't know who did actually that. And the question is, what do we do? And the court said, well, we're going to hold both of them liable because I just don't want to deal with that. And again, it's unfair that between the two careless hunters and the poor victim, he would not be able to recover because both of them were shooting. Um, and of course, if we will hold both of them liable, it will deter them from shooting carelessly. So again, first of all, uh, this is not true because we know that if the, the harm is $90 and each one benefits $40 from the activity, um, or, or let's say here, each one benefits $50 from the activity and the harm is 90 well, one person will not hunt carelessly because 50 is less than 90. But if you hold them now, both of them liable, well, now each one is going to pay half of the 90, $45 with the benefit of 50. You know what? Why not shoot carelessly? So um, actually, in those stories here, it really doesn't matter who, who I shouldn't say caused, who injured the victim. Now, actually, both of them caused the harm, right? One of them caused the physical injury. But look, about, look how the story is set up. In my story, each one benefits $50. The harm to the victim is 90 Well, one hunter is not going to shoot because 50 is less than 90 is going to lose money. Only because another person joined this hunting party, only now because liability is diluted, each one is going to pay half of the 90 45 That was the only reason they engaged in hunting. So here's the story. Let's assume that a hunter one is the one who physically injured the guy, and hunter two is the one who missed the victim. Well, but for the guy who hit the victim, but for hunter one, there would be no injury. That's true. He caused the damage. But, but for hunter number two, but for him joining the party, hunter number one would not be shooting at all, and the victim would not be harmed. So each one of them is a but for reason of the harm. Each one of them is the cause for the harm, even though one of them for sure did not injure the victim. So in terms of detection, actually, when we have a, a group causation story, um, who actually injured is a very different than who actually caused. One of them injured, but both of them in this story are a cause of the harm. So that makes it simpler. Now, there is a different detection problem of maybe, you know, we have two guys shooting carelessly, we have a victim, and those two guys are gone. So we don't have, we cannot find the injured. There is no one to file a suit against. That's a different story. But if you have a group of people, only one of them injuring the guy, uh, under my theory and under what the law is doing right now, we're treating all of them as if each and every one of them is the cause of the harm, even though one of, some of them are non-injurious. This is this was a part of the paper that I thought was very elegant, this sort of causal story in the back half, where you're, you're basically teasing apart causing the injury and causing the carelessness. And everybody who's participating is causing the carelessness. I like that. In, the same, in the same way that spreads the, 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 that takes the bill and spreads it over all the participants. This is like saying they would form a firm. It is, in a way it is. To take advantage of it. Yeah, we, we, and so the law draws a line that, that constitutes the firm. I'm, wonder, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I'm wondering if we, if we take that model, and I, I'll, I'll use my model again, I'm, you know, uh, but... Uh, uh, of, you know, would they form a firm to get to take advantage of scale economies? And if, if they would, then on the make, benefit side oh, and not on the right. cost side, right. because yeah, because the benefits are outstripping the, right. the marginal increase in um, the marginal increase in benefits is outstripping the marginal increase in, in expected costs. Right. And so they'd form if the only way to do that is to form a firm, then you make them kind of jointly liable. But I wonder if that works on the precaution side, too, and if it explains manufacturer liability or is an explanation for it. And th so think of it this way, like in a world without, um, oh, I don't know, anti-lock brakes or some other car safety feature. And we, ha we just have like very basic cars without these safety features. In order for me to modify my car to make it safer for others, uh, it would be really expensive, right? I mean, to have to like invent new technologies, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, from an individual perspective, it makes, you know, it's, it's rational because my benefits of driving exceed the expected costs, including the expected internalized cost of injuring others. But if we add all of these people together, the cost of designing that precaution goes down, right? It, so, the, so, the, so the increase in the expected cost over a whole bunch of people of a new technology is a lot less than over a smaller group of people, right? And so the, the benefits of that technology and accidents avoided outstrips the cost of that precaution. And so 
if we look at it that way, we should also put that light, you know, the responsibility for generating the precaution on that group. If they had to internalize all of the accidents, these consumers, but for transaction costs, would come together and design and implement the anti-lock brakes or whatever it is. And so, how, you know, so, so that's the right social answer, which is really what we're getting at here. Here's the right social answer, answer. And then we have the subsidiary question. Okay, how do we realize this right social answer? And I, I think, you know, one way to do it is, okay, so they would co- come together, form a firm and do this. Why don't we just put the costs on the actual firms, right? The, uh, the manufacturers. That is a way of gathering together consumers into a single firm who will design these technologies. And implement them. So this is actually great. So uh, and, and and the law actually already does that. Of so course, yeah. How, how actually tort law does that? So um, uh, first of all, uh, I had a previous paper, Tort Fest. This this this, this, this suggests about what it goes, thinking why mass torts can be in some cases under some conditions welfare enhancing. But I make exactly that point that basically when when you have a tort twist, when you have an association between firms, for example, to engage in a certain um, uh, activity that is going to give rise to liability, they have the incentive to reduce the cost of the harm by creating, by actually innovating um, precautions that maybe right. are not available on the market in order to minimize what they're going to pay already. So let's speak about drug racing. Right now, we speak about how, how do people who drug race, drug race. Usually, even if they live in a wealthy neighborhood, they try to go to an isolated area uh, or to a poor neighborhood in order to reduce the damages. They try to do it not during the day, but during the night. It could be a number of reasons why during the night. Maybe there are hours they like, they're awake during the night. It's more fun or cool. But it also lets people around and only parking cars. And if you find a deserted road, you even minimize the damage later. This is not an innovation of technology, but this is definitely having the incentive to reduce the cost, why should I pay 90 together with 10 others if I can pay 10 together with 10 others? That makes more sense. Um, factories are doing the same thing. So in the pollution stories, instead of you know, three drivers with three factories in the lake, they're going to be together liable for the $90 lake. So they do have the incentive to get together and say, you know what? Maybe we should buy a filter together. Maybe we should invent a filter that will be so cheap that we won't have to pay $90. Maybe we can invent a $5 filter that will reduce our cost. One other fun thing is that, in, and I'll speak a little bit about the law, that in concerted action cases, cases like the drug racing or when you get together with others to pursue a common plan, actually the court insists that in these cases there must be an agreement. So not only you agree where to drag, that you want to drag race, not only you're going to agree who is going to get what when they win, you're also going to agree what car to use, where you're going to do it, how you're going to do it. And one of the, of course, the things that are going to be on your radar is how I'm going to minimize the cost. So we actually, Toto is already incentivizing the actors to be innovative, to try to reduce the harm, because why pay 90 if I can pay zero or five? This, uh, this remapping of, of sort of private parties into a virtual firm on the fly after the fact, which is sort of how you're talking about it. it it's, it's interesting to me because another example I was wondering about from history, uh, and, and my grasp of the historical facts is te- very, very tenuous, and, and most of it could be wrong, but here's my, here's my recollection right that uh workplace injury and the move from traditional tort law to uh workers compensation schemes that are implemented at the employer level right the story of going from tort rules like um you know the fellow servant rule and all the complications of of holding the employer responsible for the injury inflicted on you by one of your coworkers, and was that person hired effectively and monitored effectively, and all the complications. And tort law didn't work particularly well at dealing with those things at scale, right? And so, in order to to facilitate the industrialization of the workplace, including the fact that although it would be hard to know who would be injured in advance, you could pretty much count on a certain number of people losing, you know, a finger, an arm, or whatever, a year, or a leg, a foot, whatever, that that you jump that system to the firm level. That you say, you know what, it talking about these injury dyads doesn't make any sense. Right. Because it doesn't get you to the it, it's not actually the frame on which this can be handled effectively. The frame on which it's handled effectively is at the level of the employer. 
So shift to a regime, you have to leave tort law behind, but shift to a regime that says, okay, you know you're going to have accidents, insure against the accidents, here's the insurance mechanism, we, we get rid of a bunch of traditional tort law principles that are not worth the time to administer, and just file your claim, and here's your payment. But that, right? seems, like the, that seems like the arc of the increase in economic sophistication more generally, right? That, it, it, that instead of just looking at what you call dyads, right, just A versus B, harm causer versus person who was harmed, and, right. you know, with all the complications that in, entails, we instead move up to the macroscopic level and look at the difference in value between different worlds. We prefer one, right, where maybe, quote-unquote, efficient injuries occur, but inefficient injuries don't. And then we go back down using all kinds of techniques to figure out what kinds of incentives to set up to try to get us to that world, right? And, and so when you skip past the dyad to the world where you think, okay, there are a bunch of injuries which are kind of the same, right, and are expected, and in the, in, the, in the mass, we can figure out basically how many there are likely to be, or at least individuals could figure this out if they're in the right position. Right. And so what we want to do is we want to get to the efficient number of industrial accidents, if that's what we want. Now we go back down and say, what's the best way to implement this? Oh, my God, it's not this dyadic thing anymore. It's right. basically to create a regime of strict liability where firms yeah. internalize the expected cost of their conduct. That's possible now because – anyway, go ahead. Yeah. But, but it seems that the break is the same in, in Shahar's uh, discussion. Exactly. That what you've broken is the dyad. Exactly. And you said if I, if, I, if I analyze the drag race scenario and I focus heavily on a traditional tort principle of, of okay, there's the injuring party – there's the non-injuring bystander. They have to be treated very differently in the law because of these traditional tort concepts, right? right? That sounds like the old employer cases from the 1800s of fellow servant this and respondent superior that. And it turns out not to be helpful right? in terms of the getting to the better world that you prefer on a basic CBA basis. And the inverse right? in terms of manufacturer liability, which has the effect of creating a firm of its customers who now are being forced to invest in a right. precautionary device, right? And so, and breaking free of the dyad model is a step along that road yeah. in both instances, it seemed to me. I, I like the firm association and, and having a macro-level look, but a couple of points. So first of all, when you have a, a worker, you know, injured, an employee injured at the workplace, that's very different than a tort. A tort, if you think about it as... An involuntary transaction. Two guys happen to bump into each other. A car accident, right? That's the story. Uh, actually, when we have an employer and employee, I don't walk and sleep on a banana peel and become your employee. We enter into a contract. And we always prefer contracts over tort because if people can contract, for sure they're both better, o- better off. And a contract is a means to allocate the risk. So we can, can have a provisions over there. You know, what happens if I get injured at the workplace? I can get not just, you know, my compensation, but compensation plus. However, even though we prefer contracts to tort, in the employee context, the contracts do, do not function for a number of reasons. First of all, of course, there is a huge bargaining disparity problem. That's one issue, especially in those days that we're speaking about. But it's also more efficient, and that goes towards uh, Joe's point, it's more efficient for, to put the liability on the employer for a number of reasons. One of them, he usually is the best risk avoider. I can institute a certain process that can make sure that you know, certain machines are not going to explode. Uh, I can have a certain safety protocol that if they would follow, there will be less injuries. The, the employer is also the best insurer, so everyone can get an insurance policy from your agent, but if I will be speaking with my agent and, and I try to bargain, most probably they wouldn't care much about me. If the employer calls and says, you know, I have 1,000 employees, would you give a discount to each? They will get a discount. So the employer enjoys those, if you want, scale kind of um, uh, benefits, best, best, best risk avoider, best insurer, and so forth and so on. In the drug race issue, yes, there is a sort of association like a firm. We're looking at the macro level, but we still defer the actual choices to the individual. So total is basically saying something like that. If you are going to do something stupid, if you're going to drug race carelessly, I'm going to hold all of you liable. Now, I'm not saying that you cannot do that. If you want to do that, if you think it's worth the price, so think about the liability as the price of engaging in the activity. The $90 harm becomes the price. And if we have three people, the price for each to buy that ticket to participate in the race is $30. So we still delegate the, in the, the, to the individual the decision whether to act or not, 
We're just telling them we're going to treat you as an association, but you individually make the decision. So, for example, if I have a lower valuation than Joe to participate in the race, and you and Christian come to me and say, you know, would you join us? Well, if I value the race only at five bucks, I'm not going to join you because even if it's going to be split three ways, I'm going to pay $30. If I value that only five, I'm not going to pay a $30 ticket if you want to get into a race for which I value five. But if you're going to join 100 people to this venture, well, now I'm going to be paying less than $1 for the ticket or for liability. Therefore, I will join. So basically, Total delegates still the individual decision uh, to the individual. So if you want, it's, um, it's both. We look at the macro level, but we still give the individual the individual choice as to whether to participate in this game or not. But isn't that true at the industrial level? I mean, we're, we're, we're delegating to the entrepreneur the decision whether to run a business in this line of commerce or not. Oh, absolutely. That aspect is very much the same. And the, the workers' compensation insurance scheme that is a backdrop for being in this line of business versus that line of business, I mean, that's one of the things they'll consider when they're making a choice about whether they think it's a, a worthwhile endeavor for them or not. Uh, and individual businessmen get to make that, businesswomen get to make that decision, right? Because our experience with other forms of incentives, namely the dyadic version of incentives, did not lead to as good a world, or at least in our estimation, workers' comp leads to better collective decision-making in, in the main than other forms of incentives. Yeah, so it's, it's about opportunity cost, right, Joe? So you're saying if I'm an employee, I can do, I can work for, you know, empl- employer A or employer B. Uh, it's my choice. What do I want to do with my time? I might want just to stay on the beach and enjoy the sun. Uh, so if I'm getting the right benefit and I understand the cost, uh, I, I will join the enterprise. On that aspect, it's very much the same. And it's the employer's choice as well, it seems to me, to be in that line of business or not. So on, on both levels, you, you, much like the person who's deciding whether to participate in the drag race. Uh, well, it's, it's different than the drag race in the sense that the victim is not choosing necessarily whether to be there or not, right? So um, here the, in your story, the, the employees are making the choice, but they're also but the potential victims. Uh, the employee, if you want, is the potential injurer. Yeah. But but in the story of the drug race, we have the association, the drivers and the spectators who decide um, where to conduct the activity, regardless of the victim's choice. The victim may have not a choice. So if I'm a poor person, I live in a poor neighborhood, and because I live in a poor neighborhood, then we know that total has a discriminatory effect, right? I would drive more carefully in a poor in in a, in a rich neighborhood because I may be hitting the Ferrari or the Mercedes, so my damages are going to be high. As opposed to the same careless behavior in a poor neighborhood that would be paying for a 1970 Subaru and assuming it's not vintage, I'm just going to pay a couple of pennies on the dollars. Yeah, yeah, all that is true. And I, I don't mean to minimize that. I, I, was simply, I would simply say the employee, although they're contracting to be an employee, uh, it is a predicate of this workplace injury scenario that, that it's precisely because we can't prevent all the accidents. Some of them are going to happen. We just don't know to whom. Absolutely. They're going to happen individually at the work. So no, in no individual employee is bargaining to be the person who gets hit by the cart. And if they could form a firm in this sense, they would. This is what they they would allocate in this way. The way we actually right. wind up allocating, right? right. Yeah. But the same is true of contract. I think. I mean, so contract. I, this is a situation where you think, oh, we don't have to do any risk shifting or anything like that publicly because they've actually formed a firm. They've actually gotten together uh, and allocated, you know, decided what factors to pay for. So, so long as the people who are engaged in the, in a process of joint benefit and cost creation are contracting to allocate those benefits and costs, then we think, you know, epistemologically something good has happened here. We don't need to reallocate, but there are plenty of situations where that idea is challenged, right? Where the, um, uh, so, so if you think of like, what I think of as like hard contract cases. They're one, you know, consumer contracting where consumers don't really read the contracts and a few consumers are going to be screwed very badly by them. Uh, so that, you know, you can think of, I don't know, maybe some arbitration provisions, but but some consumer contracting where I'm able to get a good for a couple of cents cheaper, but a few consumers are going to be really screwed by this deal. I'm trying to, you know, at, isn't that Carnival Cruise case or something where people have to like travel across to another state to bring their causes of action I don't know. There's some of these, right? And 
In that case, if you could get all of these people together in one contract to share all of the costs and benefits and spread them, like in situations where you can't, like one consumer can't take more care to avoid being on the wrong side of a contract than another, then they would have reallocated that risk. And so it seems to me that in mass consumer contracting where consumers don't actually read the contracts and in which risks are pooled very unequally uh, so that they are um, not really insuring one another. But if they did, they would allocate. It seems to me the same idea, right? That I don't know. Am I making sense, Joe? Or kind of? I feel like there's something there for sure. I, Shahar, it's, just, it's just the scale economy thing again, right? Where yeah, they, and that's why I want to ask Shahar where 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 you see the you're taking this idea next because this this insight about the different scales of benefit and cost and how a legal rule in tort might be taking advantage against a bunch of rhetoric that's that's actually quite misleading in a sense right right um that that there's a way this is getting leveraged effectively in terms of a pro-social outcome based on individuals preferences and how they're aggregated uh where do you see the idea going next for you where, where are you going to be taking it next the two different questions think where am i going to be, ta- to be taking it next or what might be the effect of the paper <laughs> well, either one, which either one. T- whichever one, because we, I know that we're coming up against uh, uh, the clock here because you've got a class to teach this morning, and it's you're so awesome that you're talking to us before you do class, and I, uh, so I know we, we've got limited time, but whichever one of those you want to tackle. Uh, let me speak about both of them very quickly. In terms of the paper, actually, it can lead to two results. One of them is court, you know, cannot give the lip service. We're doing that because we like deterrence and fairness because... There is no fairness. That's the reason the victim is injured. It's definitely not deterring. So my, one thing they might be doing is they would actually use punitive damages. They might use uh, more, there will be more criminal prosecution. They might change the doctrines to impose liability on less people and therefore spread less the, the risk. Uh, that would be deplorable, in my view, if they do that. Uh, because I think if there are some of those accidents, again, the cost justified, then we need them. But at least it will be an honest discussion, and that's a good thing. Uh, so we know what we are doing, and as a society, we might decide whether you know efficiency is important enough or not, and either way, it's fine. E- economics is only one tool. Where I'm taking it is to a number of places, actually. This is a, a very exciting, exciting period for me. One thing we are doing is uh, I'm teaming up with a number of economists to do some experimental studies. So we're going to check whether people really behave like that. So again, there aren't many assumptions in the paper, but a couple of them, that parties engage ex ante in a cost-benefit analysis, that each person can you know, understand their own benefits, but they have to understand the cost. Sometimes understanding the cost, how much you're going to pay, uh, it's easy, sometimes not. So we're going to run some experiments and see, you know, do people really behave like that? We're also running some uh, empirical studies. So we have some databases and ideas to see what is the effect in different jurisdictions who have some uh, minor changes in their laws about group liability and and how do we see the impact of the changes between the laws um, on accidents and and the the party's dynamic. And and there is a fourth paper, which I a theoretical paper that supplements this one about causation uh, that see basically the group dynamic from the firm level that both uh, Christian and you just mentioned. So uh, that's another exciting project. I presented that uh, uh, at the European Law and Economic Conference, and um, it got some very good feedback. So we're back to the table, redrafting, and um, hopefully we'll have something next March. If you'd like to speak with me again about that, I would absolutely love to. Cool. Yeah, so this this has gone very, very well, Shahar. So this is, this you know, what you said at the beginning about we'll see how this goes. I think, you know, this is, <laughs> this is the beginning of a great new career in podcasting for you. Um, so far, so good. I, I really enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, this is this is super fun. It's a it's a great paper. Uh, we're going to put it in the show notes so people can take a look. And you can see the, these, um, despite the fact that it involves some numbers and some a little bit of math, the examples are quite vivid and intuitive, right? I mean, and, and they really motivate you to think, huh, maybe, you know, th- to think differently about tort law than you would have beforehand. And come from real disputes. That's yeah. another thing that I think makes it so easy to grasp because these are real human events. Right. That, that happened and that courts had to grapple with figuring out how to draw the line around who should be who should bear the responsibility for it. Yeah. So thanks for writing it, Shahar, and thanks for talking to us. It was super fun. Thank you very much to you guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. And have a great class. <laughs>